Oh, yeah, I'm a child of the 80s. How many of you are a child of the 80s? Foreigner. you got to love Foreigner. Man, I'm telling you, the, the, the music of the 80s, uh, you know, I'm, I was a huge fan. Van Halen was my favorite group, like Bon Jovi. That's, I couldn't be punk because my parents would be completely mortified by that, so it was a little bit more the, like, hairband metal thing. And uh, it's amazing because if you think about the 1980s, uh, every song that was written in the 1980s seemingly was kind of about the same theme, trying to figure out this little thing called love, right? Like, it was all based on, like, codependent relationships, and it was all based on overprotectiveness of whoever it is that you love, and it was all based on this deeply emotional kind of side of love. Uh, you know, I, you guys sing it. You, you may hum it. You might have just hummed it there, but I want to read a few of these words from this song. Check this out. The, the fir- I'm not going to sing it, okay? So the first verse is, is I, I like the bands, but I'm not going to sing it. Uh, the first verse is this. I've I got to take a little time, a little time to think things over. We all need time, I guess. Okay, I better read between the lines in case I need it when I'm older. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so now this mountain I must climb feels like the world upon my shoulder. Through the clouds I see love shine. It keeps me warm as life grows colder. This is just classic 1980s. It really is. The bridge. In my life, there's been heartache and pain. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far. There's always the word traveling in a 1980s power ballad. Somewhere there's like traveling in there. All right, so to change this lonely life, Oh, man, to change the in life. And he says, and it goes on, I want to know what love is. I want to show you. I want to take a little time, a little time to look around. I've got nowhere to hide. It looks like love has finally found me. All right, we get it, 1980s. Like, love is difficult, right? That's kind of my generation, so proud of it, of contribution to music and to culture. And that was... That was kind of the symbol of the era that many of us grew up in. Trying to figure out what this word love is and what it means and what it's all about. And often it was just so, just very difficult and a journey and an uphill climb. And and I got to tell you, that is probably what we're seeing today as maybe the result of uh, a misunderstanding of what love is all about. Now, I know it's, uh, we're heading into February, and it's Valentine's Day, and some of you are thinking, yep, this is church. Like, we do this whole series on love and relationships, and, and, and I know that kind of the tendency is to think that we're going to talk for three weeks about romantic love. That's not the case. Uh, Justin's going to help me. I'm going to speak for Justin for a second. We probably don't have that much to say for three weeks about romantic love. But, okay, so, like, he's going to be helping me next week. Um, that, was, that was like a jab at me, Justin, not you. Okay, so just making that clear. Uh, so, you know, we're going to be focused on what the Bible says about love. But the word love that we find in Scripture, that we find in the Bible, is so different than our kind of love. In fact, the, the, the word love back in the first century when the Bible was written, it, it actually wasn't the word that we use today. It, it, was, it was much different. In fact, there were four or maybe even some people, some scholars believe maybe even a fifth use of the word love. And each of those different uses of it, each of the different words meant something different. 
So when I say, man, uh, you know, I love 80s music, it's different than when I look at my wife and say, honey, I love you. Like, that's a whole different love, right? It's also different than when I, like, you know, give some of you a hug and I'm like, hey, I love you. It's totally different. And the original Greek language, the language that was used for, for much of the Bible, had these very specific words that we've kind of relegated to this one word. And I think what's happened over time is some of the confusion about what love is um, has lost its meaning because we use this one word to mean a bunch of different things. We're going to use that, uh, that line from Forder's uh, title, What Love Is, here over these next three weeks. But the word that we're going to focus on is the word agape. And the word agape is, is a Greek word that means the God kind of love. A love that's rooted in humility, a love that's rooted in, in a true selfless love. And we see this word agape used all throughout the New Testament. And we see it used in, in Matthew 22 when Jesus was answering a question that his disciples asked. And I love this. It really kind of defines the what we're supposed to do. You see, we're commanded to love God and love people in Matthew 22. And Jesus had his disciples come to him and say, um, what is the greatest thing that we can do? What's, what's the greatest thing that we can be a part of? And, and Jesus answered that, and, and it's recorded in Matthew 22. I want to take a look at this. This is so interesting. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus, verse 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So he's saying there that the first priority is to love God. But then he goes on and he says this in verse 38. This is the greatest, or 39, greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and prophets. And so Jesus right there describes what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to simply put, I could kind of like capsulate it or condense it to love God and love people. In fact, you hear that sometimes. You might even hear me say that. That's our mission. It's, our, it's, our, it's what we're supposed to be about as, as Christ followers, as people of God. We're supposed to love him first. And as a result, we're supposed to love people. But because we've relegated this word love to what it is today, I think finding out what that means is very difficult. And so throughout this three-week series, Justin and I are going to be talking about the word love, but we're describing not just a romantic kind of love, not just eros. We're not talking about just phileo, the brotherly kind of love. We're talking about a God-type love that he demonstrated to us. And because he demonstrated that to us, our job now is to demonstrate that to each other regardless of what the nature of the relationship is. If it's someone that we go to school with, God says we're supposed to love them. If it's someone that we're married to, God says we are to love them. If it's our kids, we're supposed to love them. If it's our parents, we're supposed to love them. If it's our neighbor across the street, we're supposed to love them. And so we're going to be talking about love from the essence of what God defines as love, not just that romantic type of love. So if you're here today and you're like, they're going to be talking about a romantic type of love, and I've either got that settled 
or I'll never have it settled, so I don't want to hear this the next three weeks, stay with us because I promise you, I believe that this series will apply to all the relationships that you have. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, where Jesus describes the what, Paul dives into the how. And a lot of you have been to weddings. You've heard 1 Corinthians 13, maybe read at a at an event of some sort of wedding or, or maybe even a proposal or it might be read um, you know, in, in terms of like a great, uh, a great piece of poetry about love. And it's so much more than that. In fact, it's kind of like a blueprint for how we are supposed to do and how we're supposed to accomplish this great command to love God and love people. The how were shown in 1 Corinthians 13. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. That's where we're going to be over the next few weeks. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13 to, to trill, really um, to try, to, try to distill what Paul is saying about how we are supposed to love so that we can find out a little bit more about this thing that we do call love. And so 1 Corinthians 13, in fact, we're going to step back because in a lot of the, uh, a lot of the different translations, uh, there's a little phrase right at the end of verse 12, or chapter 12, that really kind of leads into chapter 13, and there's a few translations that actually includes that phrase in 13. And I want to give a little bit of background here, because Paul has been discussing, uh, primarily in chapter 12, but in really chapters 8 through 12, he's been talking about how the first church should, should find out, and, and the, the first Christians, and now us, that we should find the different gifts that God has given us. He's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And at the moment that you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And at that moment that the Holy Spirit indwells us, we are given gifts. And so Paul is talking about these gifts. And he's talking about how the, the church, the body of Christ, is made up of different people with different spiritual gifts. And how when it works together, when, when we're in our sweet spot, when we're in our lane, um, and when we are operating in our gifting, that the, the body of Christ is, is a powerful, beautiful thing. And the church often got it wrong in the first century, and we probably get it wrong today in many ways. Because here's what the first church did. One person would say, God has given me this gift, and, and I'm going to operate in this gift, and, and I'm going to do everything that I can to promote myself and my gift. And another person would say the same thing about their gift, and they began this whole, like, brag fest, this insecure, envious, jealousy-ridden kind of competition around something that God gave them. Isn't that just human nature? It's just human nature. And so they were, they were competing in terms of their gifts. And so Paul highlights the fact that these gifts are so incredibly important to the body of Christ, to the furthering of God's kingdom. But in verse 31, at the end of verse 31 of chapter 12, he says this, and he writes this, I will show you a still more excellent way. And so in many ways, what Paul is doing is setting the stage to say, these gifts are important, but there's a more excellent way. And today we're going to be taking a look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through the first part of verse 5. Here's what Paul writes. He says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In verse 2, he says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, he says, I am what? Nothing. He says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain what? Nothing. And then in verse 4, he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. And in verse 5, he ends with, it is not rude. Now, we'll leave off there today. I love these pictures. I love these these illustrations, this is, this is just great for pastors because sometimes we look for illustrations to try to communicate a truth that God's trying to communicate. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he just lays it right out. He gives us the whole sermon and illustration all together. It's like he should have charged for this like sermon kit, right? So anyway, so he gives us the illustrations. And, and, and today I want to focus on the last of that illustration. I, I've got some things that are very important to me here on stage. Some of you thought that I was going to hit a golf ball off the stage maybe at you. I've got a tea time as soon as church is over in the next service, so I thought I'd just have my clubs up here to like head off quickly. No, I'm just kidding. I've got my, I've got my golf clubs up here, and I've got, uh, I've got some cash. Um, this is uh, that's a lot of cash. I don't know if you can see. What, what are those? You see what those are? Are they ones? No, they're, 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 they're hundreds. They're, they're hundreds, but um, they're fake. Just in case some of you are really uncomfortable with this, you're like... <laughs> I don't know if I like coming into church and the pastor's got a pile of hundreds on his table. Uh, they're fake. They've got, uh, it looks like some kind of Chinese writing on them. So anyway, it's, uh, it's all fake. But, but you know, I, I got thinking, I've got my, my iPad up here and I check my iPad for news and uh, I, I use it to study when I'm, when I'm away. And, um, you know, I've got, I've got three things that are very valuable to me. And, and my, man, my clubs, I, I got my golf clubs up here. Uh, you know, I've got, Cynthia bought me new golf clubs a few years ago. I'd used, um, you guys know I love playing golf, man. It's, my, it's one of my favorite things to do, kind of my hobby. And um, uh, she bought me golf clubs because I was using clubs that were about 25 years old, which some of you are like, oh, poor Todd. Anyway, so uh, thanks for that. Uh, and I've got, do you love my, cl- my head covers here? Aren't these great? 1973 called and wants its head covers back. So anyway, those are uh, great. I love those, um, you know, black and red because go dog. Anyway, so like I've got some of my favorite, these are some of my favorite possessions, okay? And just so I give you the Sunday school answer, my real favorite possession is my family, okay? All right, so there's Sunday school answer, I got that covered. Like they're my, fa- they're my favorite part of my life, right? But these are, this represents some of the things that I love the most. And what Paul is doing here in that third illustration in verse 3 is he's saying, look, if you were to say, I'm going to give up, you know, all my technology and I'm going to give up all of my cash, all, all of my cash and everything that I own, all of my equity, my net worth, if I give up everything that I own, that which is most valuable to me, or, and he says, if I you know, sacrifice myself, we didn't think that would be a really good illustration on the stage, so we decided not to go there. But he says, if I do that, if I give up all that I have and let it go, but I don't have love, he says in verse 3, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. There's a really interesting concept in, in today's psychology. Psychologists are finding that there is a psychology to generosity. Isn't that interesting? 
There's a psychology to giving. And I read an article where it described, last year a bunch of articles came out, describing the idea of, of an authentic or genuine generosity compared to a narcissistic generosity. And the whole concept is, is that like, there, are, there are some people in this world who, who, who would sell all they have and they would give it to the poor but they would do it in a way that made themselves look really good. And you can find over and over and over and over again celebrities, and you can find people who, who have had some fame and some fortune giving away something of themselves and, and making it a big public event, having a publicity stunt surrounding it, making it something that's really focused on not the recipient of what they've given and the needs there, but they focus on themselves. It's narcissistic in its nature. And so generosity, this great thing that God designed, can be and has been ruined by humans. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, church, if you are competing, if you are publicizing, if you're making a spectacle of something that you've given up that means something to you, to the poor, but you do it in a way that brings like some kind of a claim on yourself, you gain nothing. You don't gain anything out of it. If you think there are strings attached to that, guess what? In God's economy of love, you don't gain anything. And so Paul goes on to teach us a more excellent way. He goes on to teach us a more excellent way. And right there in verse 4, he says that love is patient. And we're going to take a look at verse 4 and that first part of verse 5 today. And we're just going to really kind of dive in and take a look and find some principles, find some ideas of what God is trying to say to us. When he says that love is patient and love is kind, I think what he's talking about is he's talking about having patience and kindness when hate is directed at us. I believe that verse 4 and the first part of verse 5 have so much to do with how we love when, when we are the recipient of something completely the opposite of love. Think about it for a moment. He says, love is patient and love is kind. That's a pretty easy equation when we are the recipient of love, isn't it? Like if someone loves us, if they're patient and kind to us, it's pretty e easy for us to be patient and kind back to them, right? But it's when we are the, the focus of, of, of something that's not patient and not kind. And so I believe that the first of the three ideas that Paul is communicating to us is this idea of condemnation. When we are the target of hate, I believe Paul is saying this, stay in the game with a kind response. And it's easy for us when, when we have people in our lives who are, who are always nice, who, who are always pleasant to be around. But when we have people in our lives that um, they, they kind of direct hate and condemnation towards us. That's when it's difficult for us to love, isn't it? 
It's easy to love when people are patient and kind with us all the time. But when they're not, when they're the opposite of that, when they hate us or when they communicate in some form or fashion some sort of hate or some sort of condemnation that is coming at us, that's when it's difficult to be patient and kind. And I believe that Paul is telling us that we have to do what Jesus told us, and that is turn the other cheek. In Matthew 5, 38 through 40, Jesus says, You've heard it said that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus turned the conventional wisdom of the day of retribution and retaliation on its head. And he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And in verse 40, uh, he goes on to say, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And we get from that message this idea of turning the other cheek. And I think that what Paul is saying about love, this idea of love and what it is and how we are supposed to practice it, is that when we are the target of condemnation, our job is to respond with patience and kindness. It's a lot easier said than done, though, isn't it? It's a lot easier said than done. So when we are condemned... We've got to find within us, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment, a way to communicate words and a response that's patient and kind. You know, the New Testament is so much, starting from Matthew all the way through James, really all the way through the end, but it's so much about our response to what's going on, not just in our relationship with God, not just the vertical relationship, but the horizontal relationship as a response to what he's done. And I've got to be honest with you, God is so patient and so kind with me. And he's so patient and he's so kind with us that I understand why his view on love is that we operate with patience and kindness even when we are the targets of hate. The second thing that Paul says in verse 4 is that it does not love, does not envy or boast. He begins with the positive that we're supposed to be patient and kind. And then he comes to two couplets of two things that are negative And he says that love does not envy or boast. And I think what Paul's talking about here is the comparison game. When we're tempted to be pulled in by envy, our job is to break that, break that cycle with a grateful heart. Man, this is easy for pastors to talk about because pastors, some of you may be shocked about this, but pastors are some of the most insecure people I know. And it starts with this one right here, okay? Like, we can become incredibly insecure. At a pastor's conference, I'll, I'll fill you in on this. If you ever go to a conference with a group of pastors, there's one thing that, that we always ask each other. And, and I'm sure that some of you probably know where I'm going with this. We always ask, how's your church going? <laughs> Followed by this question, how many people are you running? And in most cases, this isn't like, hey, I want to pray for your church, and like, I want to understand your church. In most cases, when we ask that question, it's like, I want to compare myself to your church. I love you, but I want to compare myself to your church, right? That's kind of like human nature. Yeah, we're sinners too, okay? So, like, that's just human nature, this comparison game, and students, man, you face it every single day, don't you? When you walk on the campus of your school, you face it every single day. 
when you walk in and there's this comparison. I mean, middle school in particular is just like a comparison game, isn't it? Adults, you might face it when you walk into work. When you've got someone who's competing for the same territory or the same customers or the same business, businessmen and women. Or maybe you face it in your neighborhood with, when you have to keep up with the Joneses. I thought it was interesting in my neighborhood growing up, we actually had the Joneses that lived down the street and it was like, we gotta keep up with them because they're the Joneses, all right? So anyway, I always thought that was funny. <laughs> when we have to have the better house and the better yard and the better car and the neighborhood with bigger walls and a stronger gate. And we have this idea of comparison and we're so easily pulled in to this idea of comparison with envy. And, and, and I got to tell you, when it comes to these two words of envy and boast, I think what Paul's trying to communicate is that we can't love others if we love ourselves more. Justin's going to kind of dive into that theme a little bit deeper next week. Gratitude and thanksgiving is an amazing antidote to so many of the ills of what we deal with in life, and I think it applies here in so many ways. You see, church, if we were to stop in the midst of someone trying to pull us in to the comparison game and stop even for just a moment and focus on what God has done for us and what a beautiful thing he has done in making us and how he has provided for us. That's how we can get over the comparison game and how we cannot easily slip into the idea of envy and boasting because we are better than the other person. By the way, this applies in marriages and relationships as well, doesn't it? I mean, maybe not initially, right? Maybe not in the first year or six months of a marriage. But you get deep into a marriage and all of a sudden this thing that we say that we love each other all of a sudden becomes something that we compare with each other. Colossians 3, 15 through 17 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And he says this, Paul says this, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, and be what? Thankful. Thankful. You see, we're never thankful when we're focused on what we don't have. When we get pulled into to a conversation that compares us, we're not giving God thanksgiving for, for who we are and what he has done. He goes on in verse 16 to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing all, uh, uh, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Father uh, or the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father through him. Thanksgiving is the enemy of insecurity. And so when you have that tendency, when you have that moment, when you're afraid you're gonna get pulled into a conversation that leads to envy and boasting, stop for a moment and thank God for what you have and how he's made you and then all of a sudden all of a sudden you can focus on who that person is and then lastly the third idea is this idea of conceit when we encounter uncontrolled arrogance rise above it with a humble attitude 
You know, when we are, when we are dealing with someone who is just overcome with, with this arrogance and this boastful pride about themselves, and when our tendency would be to come right back at them with arrogance and, and, and a rude and cutting, snarky, as they say in the UK, attitude, like just stop for a moment and ask God to give you a humility that he demonstrated. He says that love, Paul says, love is not arrogant or rude, and we can't love others when we think that we are just better than them. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, what's that next word? In humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Paul says, if I give all of this away, but I don't have patience and kindness, or if I am envious or boastful, or if I am arrogant, or rude, he says, I gain nothing. I want you to notice that he doesn't say in this context that we have nothing. He says that we gain nothing. Paul is telling us that there is nothing to be gained in terms of love when we're not patient, when we're not kind, when we display envy and boasting, and when we ourselves are arrogant and rude. God's way of love is rooted in true humility, and it leads to lasting change. It did for each one of you who are here today, and you accepted him as your Savior. And in our life, there, there's no guarantee that we are going to always be the recipient of this kind of love that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. But you and I can be confident that in our relationship with God that we are loved with a pure, authentic, true love. And if we truly understand that and let that be the light that guards our heart, then we might be able to do a little bit better in this more excellent way of finding what love is. The big idea today, bottom line, there's no guarantee that when we love others that we will be loved in return. But we can be confident that God will always love us with a patient and everlasting love, regardless of our response to him. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. You see, contained in 1 Corinthians 13 is the way that God loved us. It was risky. Think about this for a moment. I want you to think about the fact that God chose to send his son to die on the cross. Not knowing if you would say yes to his offer of salvation. 
He did it even when you reject him, when I reject him. He did it even when we walk in utter disobedience to, to his commands. And when we uh, claim that, you know, we're, we're not Christians when we, when we really, like, you know, are and to, to our friends and when we don't act like it and they know that we really are, he extends kindness and patience with us. And if that's not a motivating factor for us to do the same with the people in our lives, I don't know what is. We love him because he, or we love because he first loved us. My challenge to you today is, why don't you try the more excellent way that Paul describes? Cynthia and I have been married for 24 years coming up in June. I, I didn't hesitate there, did I? And I got to tell you, we have learned so much about this concept of being patient and kind. Because there have been times, I promise you, when, when I have not been patient and kind to her. And she has had to learn that God-type love for me when I have not been the most patient and kind husband. There have been times when I've been arrogant and rude. There are times when I have been boastful or even envious. That does creep into a marriage. And she has had to learn from God's word and from how he loved her what that means to me. And I've had to do the same with her throughout the years. And we've had to learn what it means to have this kind of love that's a more excellent way that's not always easy that's a little bit risky that really pushes down ourself and promotes the other person even when everything in us wants to respond in a different way it's not always easy and i know it's not always easy for you in your relationships whether it's a marriage or whether it's a relationship a courtship or whether it's someone at school or work or in your neighborhood. And my challenge to you today is try the more excellent way, the way that God loved you. In all those relationships that you're struggling in right now, just ask God for the confidence because on our own, we can't accomplish this. On our own, we don't have the power to be patient and kind. We don't have the power to, to push down envy and boasting. And we don't have the power in ourselves to push down that arrogance or rudeness when we want so bad to retaliate. But with God on our side, Christ follower, we have the power to do these things. And because he showed us, man, it's a huge motivating factor for us to try the more excellent way. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you that you first loved us. God, I thank you that you chose to resolve the sins, the disobedience, the rebellion of humanity by sending your son to die on the cross. And God, today we are thankful for what you did on the cross. God, today uh, we give thanks and gratitude for that. But God, 
the relationships that we have on this side of heaven, God, can sometimes be difficult to navigate. And sometimes this call to love you and love others may be the most difficult thing that we do. Especially, God, when we're the, the center of condemnation and when we're the center of, when we try to get, when people try to pull us in to competition and when we're the center of, of this idea of conceit, God, I pray that you would help us that we would rely on you and the power that you provide for us to love in the way that you loved us. God, help us to realize all that we have in you. And God, I pray that you would change our hearts. God, I pray right now for in this room, for any relationship that might be out there represented in this room, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a neighborhood thing going on or something in the workplace, God, I pray that you would help us to agape others. God, in your strong name, help us to be patient. God, in your strong name, help us to be kind. Help us, God, to resist the temptation to go down the path of envy or jealousy or to play the comparison game, or to boast about how great we are. God, I pray that you would help us to, to resist the temptation to be arrogant or rude. God, because those things really aren't love. God, those things are all about us. God, I pray that you would help us to love people and do it in the way that you loved us. God, I pray for relationships that are represented in this room that need restoration, they need healing. God, I pray that you would allow us to choose the more excellent way and that even today, even right now, that we would go home and that we would make that phone call or that we would sit down and have that conversation. Or God, in, in our heart of hearts, that we would begin right now to change our, our heart and in our, change our attitude and, begin to put on these things that Paul, inspired by you, talked about and wrote about. God, I pray that we would be people who love the way that you loved and that we would choose this more excellent way. Give us the power, give us the courage to be able to do that. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.